Hi everyone, this is Bina007 and I am back for another 10 minute movie review. And today I am going to talk to you about The Zone of Interest, written and directed by Jonathan Glazer and based very loosely on the novel by the late Martin Amis. Jonathan Glazer makes films that are slippery and provocative and mysterious and dangerous. Films like his astonishing Under the Skin, Birth and Sexy Beast. And now we have The Zone of Interest, which I feel was one of the most impactful, technically superb and genuinely gut-wrenching films I saw this year. For those of you who do not know the genesis of this film, it is from the Martin Amis novel that is famously set in Auschwitz and centers on a family that is loosely based on that of Camp Commandant Rudolf Hess, but it's all hidden behind fake names. What Jonathan Glazer has done in this film is create a, a movie that never lets us escape the reality of what is going on in the Holocaust, while never actually showing it. And I think the searing impact of seeing the moral bankruptcy of a family committing heinous acts, being present at heinous acts, but trying to continue a fiction of a normal life despite that is incredibly powerful. This is a film that came to the BFI London Film Festival this year with a lot of festival buzz since its premiere at Cannes. And it played, I think, was it a day later or a day before One Life, which is also a film about the Holocaust and a very moving film, but where One Life argues that the base attribute of humanity is decency. The zone of interest, I think, argues that it is literally indecency. It is the absence of decency. And it is a film that has been informed by apparently years of research and access to the Auschwitz site's archives. Glazer actually films on location with a replica of Camp Commandant Rudolf Hess's house built a few hundred yards from the original. And there is something so deeply authentic, a disturbing sense of being in the presence of banal evil, in the words of Hannah Arendt, in a landscape that we have seen so many times in documentaries and in testimony from Claude Landsman's Shoah, among many other films. The power of this film lies, I think, in the way in which it has been meticulously constructed and the conceptual choices made by Glazer. And I thought at the time, and I continue to think two months after initially watching it, that the film is best described as working on three levels at once. The visual story, the sound design and the score. So for me, the first level of this film is the visual story. And that is almost entirely and claustrophobically that of the Hess family. Most of the action of this film takes place in their house, breaking only as Rudolf is sent to Berlin for a temporary reassignment. So we're trapped in the everyday rhythms of a family, kids getting ready for school or playing in the swimming pool, mother tending to her garden or gossiping with her friends, servants laying the table, these quotidian rhythms. A lot of the action centers on Hedvig Hess, the mother who was in this house all day long while her husband goes off to work in the camp. And her mother in turn arrives for a visit. And we realize through the mother's eyes just how well this working class couple has done under the Nazi regime, 
She is surprised by and impressed by the luxury. The daughter of a cleaner is now the matriarch in a luxurious villa. She has servants, mink coats, jewels. And this is because Hedvig has the pick of the luxury items stolen from the Jews before their murder. And despite having a rather provincial, ugly look, she clearly has a liking for this luxury, even though she knows where it comes from. As for her husband, Rudolf, he is what his children claimed, a a loving father with a fondness for horses. They swim in the lake, they paddle in their canoe, and all of this is depicted with a natural casualness and intimacy that is afforded by strong performances from Christian Friedel, who you may know from the TV series Babylon Berlin as Rudolf Hess, and Sandra Hüller, who you may know from Tony Erdman or The Amazing Anatomy of a Fall as Hedvig. They are both incredibly strong actors. It would please me immensely if they got Oscar nominations, despite this being a film made in German. I feel that the performances are almost doubly strong because as German citizens, they have had to struggle with the morality of depicting these iconic people of Nazi history. But there's something very impressive about the fact that they have mastered the duality of a couple that are simultaneously living with and perpetrating murder and benefiting from it, but also trying to run a normal quote-unquote happy family. And these performances, which are so impressive, are also enabled by a novel system of fixed cameras that allow the performers to move through the villa more freely and stay in the moment. So I think it's really, it's a sort of combined technical feat of the actors and the director and the cameraman. The key point of this visual narrative, this first level of the film, is that we see the camp walls and the chimneys and the endless smoke as Jews are murdered, but we never actually see the horrors beyond the villa walls. And as such, I think this film would work as a really phenomenal companion piece to the similarly formally audacious and haunting Saul Fia, also known as the Son of Saul. It played the BFI London Film Festival in 2015. It's directed by the Hungarian director Laszlo Nemesh. And for 107 minutes, he keeps his camera tightly focused on his protagonist, who is an Auschwitz inmate. And we never escape the mechanics of death. And it's kind of like the inverse of zone of interest, where we always see or think we see on the edge of our vision what is happening in that concentration camp, but we actually never see it. We're held at bay. And this gives the film a deliberate claustrophobia and tension born of that false divide between the idyllic family life that the Hess family are trying to create and its surroundings. The only times we break away from the perspective of the Hess family is when Glazer uses thermal imaging to show a little Polish girl, almost like the heroine of a fairy tale, leaving a trail of apples and pears for the prisoners in the camp at night. This really happened. And it's as if her innate humanity and goodness and decency can only be shown literally as the negative of the Nazi evil that we see in broad daylight in this film. So that's the first layer of this film, the visual. The second layer of the film, the second element, is kind of correcting that fake isolation, that fake separation. And it is the sound design by Johnny Byrne. And again, I really hope this wins awards. Because while we may not see the camp and its victims explicitly, we hear them constantly. We hear the rumble of trains arriving and the screams of families being separated. 
We hear the gunshots and horses rearing and panicked people. Most horrifyingly, we hear the incinerators burn. To be fair, we also see this in our peripheral vision, the orange lights at night as another selection is made. And we see the impact of this sound, of this actual immersion in murder on the family. One of the daughters sleepwalks. The mother-in-law comes to visit and then flees. She is unable to stomach the sounds and the smell of burning. Rudolf, we later find, has some kind of stomach problem. And even if his conscious mind does not acknowledge the horror he is perpetrating, we get the sense that his body is revolting against it. Strangely, it is only the wife Hedvig who seems to exhibit no horror at what is happening and is only angry when she thinks she might have to leave, quote, this paradise, unquote. So we have the visual story of what is happening within the family. And then we have a sound design that tells us what is happening just outside of our vision. And both of these levels of the film are scrupulously real and researched and cognitively dissonant with each other. And it's this dissonance that makes the film so hard to watch and so haunting. But then, as I said, I think there are three layers to this film. And the third element of this film, beyond the visual, beyond the sound design, is an astonishing score by Mika Levy, or Misha Levy, I'm not sure how to pronounce um, their name. I can only say that I'm a long-term fan of this composer. Um, Their work on, I think I was first made aware, on Under the Skin, another Jonathan Glazer film. They also scored the phenomenal Pablo Lorraine film Jackie. Again, really haunting, strange, unique orchestration. And in this film, the orchestral score can only be described as the element that gives us our emotional response to the dissonance, to the truth of Auschwitz and of Hess descending the final staircase into immorality. It's a score like something out of a horror film or how one might imagine Dante's Inferno to sound. It's orally invasive and unreal and abstract and in some ways cathartic because when you're seeing this supposedly gentle family life, and the off-screen constant rumbling machinery of murder in a sound design. I think we as the viewer need something that sounds like and allows us to scream in horror. We need something that allows us to acknowledge the mass murder that is taking place behind the veneer of the family life. And that's what this score does. Part of me wishes that Jonathan Glazer had not broken our entrapment in this nightmare to show us the footage of the modern Auschwitz Museum or even maybe the little girl with the pears and apples. I I feel that we need to be trapped and to confront both what happened and how these supposedly real human people themselves chose not to confront it and to enact murder or be complicit in it. I feel that the film may have worked better not to give us that escape um, and just keep us mired in hell, a little bit like Saul Fear. But this one choice does not undercut just what a monumental achievement of cinema this film is. I think it is technically brilliant, formally brave, morally so required, so necessary, especially now. The most provocative film I have seen this year, but never taking itself lightly, always provocative with purpose and with profound moral and historic responsibility. From my perspective, it's it's just a piece of cinema 
that transcends a form. It's a work of art. It's a work of history. It's a work of profound in self-interrogation for yourself, for us as humanity. And I can only encourage you to see it on the largest screen you can find and with the best audio system you can find. Because as I say, this is a film uniquely where visual, sound design, orchestration are working not to complement, but to contrast. And being enveloped in all three, I think, is really important to get a full understanding of the film. If you have seen it and if you agree or disagree with what I've said, I'd love to continue this conversation. You can either put a comment in the YouTube comments or find me at bina007.com. Leave a comment there. I'm always happy to discuss great works of art like this. The Zone of Interest has a running time of 106 minutes. It is rated PG-13, and that's because of what you don't see on screen. But I promise you, this is a really disturbing watch. So think carefully. I do think children should watch this, but think carefully about how you approach it and the context in which you then explain its content. The film played Cannes 2023, where Mika Levy won the Soundtrack Award. Jonathan Glazer won the Fripresci Prize and the Grand Prize of the Festival. The film also played the Toronto, Telluride and London Film Festivals this year. It opened in the USA last Friday, December 15th. 2023, and it is scheduled to open in the United Kingdom on February 2nd, 2024. Thank you for listening.